It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us uh, from London, Nico Hines, world editor of The Daily Beast. How are things uh, by the River Thames? <laughs> We're surviving, thank you. Good evening. Welcome as well to Vivian Walt, Paris correspondent for Time magazine. How have things been for you? Not too bad. You're surviving as well. I'm surviving, okay. yeah. <laughs> Matthew Dalton, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Is he surviving? He is. Okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome as well. Uh, from Munich, he's in the thick of it, France 24, Germany correspondent Nick Spicer attending uh, that security uh, conference. I guess we can call it a summit uh, that's taking place. We'll have more on that in a moment. Thanks for being with us, Nick. Thanks for having me, Francois. You can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. First, though, 11 days since the worst earthquakes ever to hit modern Turkey and Syria, and they're still pulling survivors from the rubble. More than 260 hours on, a 14-year-old and a 34-year-old rescued in the historic city of Antakya. Volunteers have worked around the clock with the next challenge already upon them. Uh, greenhouses west of Antakya in the coastal town of Samandag. These uh, survivors are living in greenhouses. Uh, they're among millions left homeless by the quakes. The challenges of staying here are that we have no clean clothes. We can't clean ourselves or take a shower. We can't change what we're wearing. It's very difficult to live here. There's no sink. Yeah, these aren't refugees. These are Turkish citizens. Uh, v v Vivian Walt, uh, it's, it's a daunting challenge. What is that? I read that there's 260,000 apartments destroyed in those quakes. And something like 17,000 buildings that are probably all to be condemned, um, let alone gone through for more bodies. Um, you know, the, the idea that, that they're still finding survivors is kind of mind-boggling. Um, it's this whole story of the earthquake has been a story of how much human beings can actually withstand. Um, and I, I've just found it unbelievably heartbreaking, but also just an incredibly sort of unfathomably interesting to, to watch um, how people are actually surviving with nothing with nothing, often with no food, no shelter, um, in freezing cold conditions. Freezing cold conditions, Matthew Dalton. Yeah, I think the estimates are um, several million homeless people. Um, and then you, you think about how a lot of this suffering is occurring um, across the border um, in Syria, um, in northeast Syria, a region you know that has been at war for, the, for more than a decade, um, where the government... Uh, Bashar al-Assad's government doesn't really have the resources to provide aid where international aid agencies are really having difficulty um, even sending the, the, the basic necessities to help people. Um, so it's, you know, this terrible disaster is coming a part of the world that was already uh, dealing with a terrible man-made disaster. Yeah, and uh, as you say, there's, there's kind of an imbalance in, uh, in how we're focusing our attention because of that mm -hmm. 
that civil war. There have been silver linings, like uh, Vivian Waltz says, the resilience of those uh, rescuers. Uh, and there's also been earthquake diplomacy after the Greek foreign minister, the turn of Armenia's top diplomat this week to visit Turkey. Old rivals uh, putting aside differences in the face of the quakes. Logistics in Syria, again, complicated by 12 years of civil war. Aid in government-held areas channeled through Damascus. And there, too, traditional rivalries on hold as uh, Gulf states offer help. Here you see the Saudis sending aid to Aleppo and getting thanks for it. We cannot overlook expressing thanks to all the countries that stood by us since the first hours of the disaster from among our Arab brothers and our friends. Their material and field aid had a major impact on enhancing our ability to confront the difficult conditions at critical hours. Nick Spicer, listening there to Bashar al-Assad, your thoughts on earthquake diplomacy? It, it's amazing how humanity comes together to overcome, you know, the animosity that exists, rightful animosity that exists, I think, as concerns Bashar al-Assad, Assad, who, you know, has engaged in war crimes and done everything possible to hold on to power, but uh, outside countries recognize and th there's more to that than trying to ostracize him or impose new sanctions. There are people who are suffering. Um, it is, it's, it's remarkable and as tragic as it is, it's somehow inspiring to see that people can, governments can get past it, focus on the essential, which is, you know, racing to rescue any survivors that there, that there may be. Yeah, right now the UN uh, appealing for one uh, billion uh, uh, dollars from donors uh, for Syria and uh, and 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 in particular, and also for Turkey. And we've seen uh, countries like Qatar being able to go to uh, rebel-held areas like Idlib. Uh, will earthquake diplomacy as well extend to NATO? Its Secretary General visiting uh, disaster areas Thursday, as he uh, nudged his hosts to uh, approve uh, Sweden and Finland's applications to join uh, the, the alliance. Uh, I guess that's testing Nico Hines the, the limits of earthquake diplomacy. You know, it's hard to know how it will play out. I was speaking to a correspondent friend in Istanbul about the earthquake and its effects on Erdogan. And of course, it makes him look bad to a certain extent that so many of those buildings were given a pass on the necessary earthquake certification um, during his rule. Uh, however, it's also an opportunity for him to show himself as a leader, she was telling me, and it depends on how he mobilizes the response. It also offers him with an opportunity to postpone elections, uh, to say, look, it, it's a horrible national tragedy. The elections, which I think were slated for May, can't be held now under these conditions. We need to have uh, a little more time to think. And so that also, you know, isn't necessarily a beneficial thing if it allows him to hold on to power. Let's remember that his main rival uh, faces jail time for allegedly maligning election officials who messed up essentially the results in Istanbul. So, it, you know, in crisis opportunity and the opportunities can, can not necessarily always be for, for, let's say, the good guys. I mean, they can be used in, in, in many different ways. It, it, it's, it, I think it's helpful perhaps uh, for, for NATO members to, to remind Turkey that uh, they stand steadfast and are, are willing to apply 
whatever means they have to, to help the Turks and might expect some payback. Uh, I don't know if they're saying it so explicitly. I think that would be a little unseemly when it comes to admitting Finland and Sweden. And of course, Turkey is opposed to their admission, particularly Sweden's, uh, because they see that they are too supportive of uh, the Kurds, Kurdish militias, and, and, and host in their countries people uh, that uh, Erdogan would describe as Kurdish terrorists. So, you know, we just have to see how it plays out over time. But I said it can be played either way by Erdogan. It could be right. an opportunity to hold on to power, or it might be an opportunity for NATO to get those members in quickly. Nico Hines, are we looking at this in uh, too transactional a manner? Too optimistic this evening, um, talking about the joys of international diplomacy and humanity coming together. I think what we've actually seen is Assad reasserting his power, absolutely loving being back on the world stage, talking to foreign leaders, pretending that he's a legitimate leader of a country when he'd in fact been shunned quite rightfully for so many years after the horrors that have unfolded on his watch. And then in Turkey, when there was a chance for NATO to actually try and do a deal with Erdogan, he is quite willing to stand there and, you know, side by side with, with NATO, just rebuff their offer and say, no, I don't really care, thanks for coming, but there's no way we're going to let Sweden in to NATO at this stage because somehow or another they haven't doffed their cap sufficiently to our demands, which is quite crazy when you think about it. I mean, Sweden have amended their constitution in order to keep Ankara happy, and still Erdogan is refusing to accept that they've done enough. So I'd love to be optimistic and look on the bright side, but I think actually realpolitik is playing out and that the bad guys are pushing harder and getting what they want. Speaking of realpolitik, forget planes. What Ukraine needs right now is ammo, they say. That's the assessment as well for NATO defense ministers in Brussels this week as they uh, kept tabs on Russia's bloody bid for Bakhmut in the eastern Donbass region. Now, uh, for years, alliance members thought cyber defense, counterinsurgency were what mattered. Uh, they didn't expect an old school full-scale ground war in Europe. Ahead of next week's first anniversary of the war, Ukraine's president making his pitch for more assistance by video link to that annual Munich Security Conference. His allies say they're going as fast as they can. If you just look at the, the pace, the size, and the scale of the U.S. security assistance alone, it's historic, it's unprecedented. I understand, we all understand, that President Zelensky's in the middle uh, of a vicious war. His country has been invaded, his people are being slaughtered. Of course he wants more, and he wants it faster. Everybody understands that. But the United States has literally been leading the world in contributions to Ukraine. Literally leading the world in contributions to Ukraine. Uh, Matthew Dalton, John Kirby, they're speaking to France 24's Kedavan Gorgistani. Is there the hint that perhaps uh, other allies could still be doing more? Well, perhaps. Uh, a little hard to, to say what was behind that comment. I mean, I think the United States and um, Western European countries, uh, really all of Europe, kind of suffer from the same problems, which is that the structure of their defense industry was not suited to the war that emerged in Ukraine. Um, this is a war where you need um, lots of 
traditional artillery. Um, you know, there are very few factories, even in the United States, which has this huge military industrial complex, you know, spends uh, an absurd amount of its GDP on military spending, yet um, seemingly doesn't have enough of kind of the basic um, military equipment needed in a traditional war, artillery shells. It seems like all of that money has been going to these super advanced um, expensive, very wasteful weapons programs, um, you know, such as the, the super the F-35, other kinds of um, weapons programs that, you know, given what um, the U.S. and its allies are up against with Ukraine right now, um, have proven to be kind of um, useless. And what Ukraine needs now and what the United States and its allies need to produce is just like plain old um, mortars and shells. <laughs> Mortars and shells. And yeah, uh, sometimes it's unsophisticated stuff. Uh, coming up, we'll have an update on spy balloon accusations against China. Turns out, though, it's not just Beijing. Moldova closing its airspace for a couple of hours Tuesday because of strange sightings. And Romania even scrambling uh, jets. Uh, uh, Ukraine blames Russia for sending out decoys to confuse its uh, anti-missile uh, batteries, uh, Nico Hines. Yeah, it's very confusing to what's going on. I think it seems, though, what's been happening is that there are lots of balloons floating around all over the world all the time. And perhaps some of them are spy balloons. Perhaps, I mean, I think Kiev might be giving Moscow a bit too much credit to suggest that they were putting up balloons to deliberately distract them from their more nefarious plans. I think that's um, a kind of overreach uh, analysis of what happened. It may well be that Russia was using some spy balloons and they may have been using them previously because it does seem that from what we've all been learning about spy balloons over the last week or so, that they do offer a very detailed picture of on the ground activity, some, you know, even better than satellites do. So they do still seem to have some use. And as we've been finding out, China's been sending them over for years. But I think what's become clear as well is that basically no one was really bothering to look for these balloons, which is why China and Russia and other countries have been using them for so long, so effectively, without being spotted. And now that suddenly we're looking, we're seeing all sorts of balloons all over the place. I mean, my favourite is the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, who reported this week that one of their uh, amateur hobby balloons had gone missing somewhere over Alaska and suspicions are that it may have been one of the balloons that was shot down by the F-22 using a $400,000 missile. Um, we don't know yet that it hasn't been confirmed because it's really, really unclear what is going on in the skies over the US and over the rest of the world. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk more about things that, that are floating in the sky in a moment. Uh, but yeah, in this particular case, the Russians accused of sending up decoys uh, uh, to confuse the anti-missile batteries uh, of the Ukrainians. And while the West gears up for that first anniversary of Russians and Russia's invasion uh, next Friday, South Africa staging 10 days of joint naval uh, drills uh, with Moscow, Vivian Walt. Uh, and uh, those drills will be ongoing on February 24th. Russia and China. So, um, you know, yes. And I think that it's very indicative of a feeling within South Africa as the biggest economy on the African continent and much of Africa as well. That is not with the West on this, on this uh, aspect. They are not all for Ukraine. 
Um, they see it as kind of a major West-East battle in which they are kind of the neutral party. And for that matter, maybe a little bit pro-Russian. Because um, we saw protests uh, when recently there was the visit of the, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Not terribly big. But that's I what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Is, uh, what does the South African street think about all this? I think the South African street probably doesn't think much one way or another. But certainly I think the government see their economic interests as not particularly lying with Europe and the U.S. on this. China is massively involved in Africa and has been for decades. Um, a lot of the infrastructure has been built by China. And, um, and Russia has been increasingly muscling in there. So, you know, cutting good energy deals, things that matter to Africa, um, and which perhaps the West has been somewhat neglectful in having kept up with. Um, now, of course, you have what's essentially a sort of reordering of, of the international spheres of influence. Um, and in some ways, Africa is sort of up for grabs. And that's kind of a worrying thing. I mean, it's a continent with an enormous amount of critical um, resources. Yeah, and, 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 a gr and a growing population that's vibrant. Uh, that, that Munich conference uh, uh, that, uh, where Nick uh, Spicer is may just be a talk shop. But as we were saying, it brings in lots of heavyweights. Dare we say history was made there, like in 2007, when Russia's president stunned the audience with a 30-minute tirade blasting the U.S. invasion of Iraq at the time, NATO's expansion, and Washington's post-Cold War dominance. What is a unipolar world? Even if we try to expand this term, it simply means only one source of strength, one central power, and one head of decision-making. Uh, Nick Spicer, your thoughts listening to uh, a younger Vladimir Putin there. Well, I lived in Moscow for three years, and I remember, you know, my colleagues telling me that there were a number of traumatic memories uh, for, for, for them, uh, and particularly for the man in the Kremlin. There's also the Kosovo bombing, uh, when, you know, NATO bombed uh, fellow Slavs, fellow Orthodox people, that, that was seen as, 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 as unacceptable sort of overreach by the West. But I think, you know, going back to that particular speech, it was really interesting in the run-up to the invasion of Ukraine. There was this uh, video by an American academic, Mearsheimer, who was saying, well, given NATO expansion, this was inevitable. It was a sort of a provocation to Russia. I'm paraphrasing here. But, you know, that's sort of conceiving the world of international relations is a bunch of billiard balls hitting off each other. And things are, of course, much more fluid. They're transnational things. And it wasn't the United States that forced the countries in Central and Eastern Europe into NATO. They were hammering at the door. Okay, and democracies were hammering at the door. So that doesn't really enter into Putin's worldview, the idea, A, that democracies can opt into international organizations. He just looks at things in real politique terms, which doesn't mean we have to subscribe to his point of view. I think, you know, many people now would recognize that given his invasion of Georgia, what has gone in Transnistria, what goes on in the Caucasus, that this is part of an imperial pattern. And saying that NATO is expansion is basically him looking for a pretext or some kind of justification 
um, for action, further action. Well, it was the invasion of Georgia shortly after that, and it fits, uh, you know, part and parcel with the the, the you know the five thousand word screed that he published in July, before the invasion of, of Ukraine, setting out his sort of imperial ambitions and saying Ukraine never really existed and it belongs to us. So, an interesting speech, certainly. So yeah, a but just just point, just a, on, a on this on the, this the, point, you know, presidential on this, character. On this point, uh, Nick Spicer, let's just g give a bit of context here for our viewers, because 2007, that was the days when uh, it was the G8, Russia was, it was invited into the tent. Uh, it was seen as a turning point, this speech. Now, you've, yeah. you pointing there to the consistencies since in Vladimir Putin's thinking, but was it a, that big a surprise when he made that speech in Munich? Oh, back in the day, certainly it was. I mean, there's another, I mean, there, there are speeches that make history in Munich. There was Donald Rumsfeld, I think, in 2002, talking about the old Europe and the new Europe and the old Europe doesn't want to go to war in Iraq with us and the, and the new Europe, which were, you know, the new Central and Eastern European members uh, are involved. There are, you know, these sort of um, speeches that uh, set people off here. And, of course, we're living in a NATO a European situation now where there is massive unity because of Russia is something that, you know, the most ardent NATO supporters could, could not have dreamed of to see, you know, the NATOization of Finland, uh, to, to borrow an American diplomat's phrase. This is, this is Putin's worst nightmare made real by Putin himself. Nico Hines, let me bring you in on this. Uh, is, if this is the same Vladimir Putin in 2007 as it is uh, today, and we're again in the build-up to that anniversary next week, uh, how come we're st we still were caught off guard or surprised when he invaded Ukraine? Well, I'm not sure we were massively caught off guard. It was something that the West intelligence agencies had been warning for a long time, even though Ukraine was trying to play it down. I think if you look at the context, um, as Nick was saying, talking about previous incursions in, in Georgia and the like, it's something that's been a pattern of Putin's behaviour throughout. And obviously, 2014 was the actual start of the invasion of Ukraine when he moved in to take Crimea and into parts of the Donbass and Luhansk regions in the east of Ukraine. So this is really part of a slow-moving, ongoing problem. And I think if we want to look at why we didn't realise it was going to get a lot worse, then that really is a big, big finger pointing at Europe and the US. They allowed Putin to take Crimea. They allowed him to take the east of the country. He did so. He got a bump in popularity back at home. He didn't really suffer that many casualties. It's really, when we look back on it now, absolutely no surprise that he took that as a green light to go even further and launch this absolutely foolhardy, crazy land invasion in Europe, something that people did overlook, um, but something that we actually encouraged Putin to do. Yeah, we're looking at those uh, live images, of, not live images, but images from earlier today of uh, uh, the Russian president in the company of his Belarus uh, counterpart in, in Moscow. And uh, on camera, uh, Vivian Walt, there was this exchange uh, uh, where Vladimir Putin says, thank you for agreeing to come. And Lukashenko replies, how could I not agree? Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Lukashenko's very survival depends on the man he's sitting right there in the room with. 
Um, you know, he has gone to Putin several times when his back is against the wall, sort of ple pleading for help. And this is essentially payback time for him. Um, there is no real love loss between the two men, generally speaking, underneath, but they have a common interest, and that is um, they are both ranged against Ukraine, obviously. Um, and, uh, and, and also, don't forget, it's like Belarus itself has been the scene of massive protests and a revolution, mm. essentially, um, that has now been quelled. And there are thousands of people sitting in jail, and everybody's kind of forgotten about it. Um, the the all eyes are in their on their next door neighbor, Ukraine, and their other neighbor, Russia, um, and um, their own internal fracturing has essentially been pushed aside. So no Russians this year in Munich. Uh, there is talk, though, of the U.S. Secretary of State, who's present of sitting down with his Chinese counterpart. This brings us back to what Nico Hines was saying earlier about balloons. Uh, they'll be talking about ballooning tensions over those spy crafts. There were more unidentified floating objects uh, shot down last weekend over North America, not attributed uh, to uh, Beijing. Turns out there's a lot of stuff up there. An estimated 600,000 weather balloons alone are launched uh, annually around the globe uh, each year. Here you're seeing a, a nifty graph, uh, 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 Matthew Dalton, uh, that you know, this is like uh, stuff that's above uh, where uh, passenger planes fly and even fighter crafts. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there was all, all this stuff up, up above our heads, did you? Well, yeah, and that, that's not even to mention all the stuff from extraterrestrials that's that's up there. <laughs> that's um, been denied it's yeah. been denied um, by the white house <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's there's lots of stuff floating up there um you know and the chinese there have said consistently that um this is not a spy balloon it's something that drifted off course uh, over north america now you know believe that or not but um you know lo lots of countries have uh balloons floating up there for a variety of purposes and i think it's kind of crazy to watch what's ha you know how this has influenced politics in the United States. I mean, it's created a real political firestorm in the U.S. where the Biden administration has, you know, started just blowing stuff out of the sky because it doesn't want to seem weak um, regarding all the kind of unidentified flying objects And it objects was when ordinary citizens spotted uh, this uh, uh, balloon uh, over Montana near where there's uh, uh, nuclear missile silos yeah. uh, that the U.S. government uh, decided to go public with what they were looking at. Yeah, and but you kind of also don't want to set the precedent where you know people are just kind of calling in um, strange objects floating, and then the United States military goes out and you know takes it down. Um, so it seems like you know the, the as you said, the Biden administration has said that the, all this other stuff was not from China. Um, they they kind of don't know what it. Uh, the other whatever three or four objects that they shot down were not from China. They don't know exactly what it is. Um, but I think, uh, you know, given the political, given the politics in Washington, um, you know, you can never be too uh, strong on China, basically. Yeah. So, no, so well, let's listen to the they're US. Gonna, they're going to break out the, the, the military equipment to, to, to make sure that they, they look strong. All right, let's listen to the U.S. president. Uh, Joe Biden says he's going to speak to Xi Jinping soon. 
I expect to be speaking with President Xi, and I hope we have, we are going to get to the bottom of this. But I make no apologies for taking down that balloon. Nick Spicer, is it confirmed, first of all, that that uh, uh, sidebar meeting between the U.S. Secretary of State and his Chinese counterpart where you are? I haven't heard a confirmation, which doesn't mean it, it, it's not taking place. But, you know, let's remember that Blinken was poised to go to Beijing uh, and then the balloon story came along and he had to cancel his trip. Uh, there was a big outrage there. And I just, if I may, a little historical note about balloons. I know we, it, it's sort of comical now, but in 1983, there was a Soviet Air Force general who later became a hero. Uh, because there were balloons flying into Soviet airspace and the radar showed it up as a possible incoming ICBM attack and he said, this can't be right and there was no riposte. There would have been nuclear Armageddon and uh, we might not be here today. So, you know, not to say that we're in a hair trigger situation like that now, but there's a long story of balloons, I think, you know, um, provoking conflict. Uh, Happily this time, it seems to be just diplomatic. And I think the language of the American diplomats is, we're gonna be in competition with the Chinese. That's a given, particularly over Taiwan and spheres of influence uh, in the Asia Pacific. But that doesn't mean we can't also have a certain level of cooperation, which is absolutely necessary. And I think that encounter is very likely to to take place. And that's what the the, the two men will work towards. Pardon the pun, Vivian Wall, but will this blow over? Well, I kind of like my accurate weather forecast, so I'm hoping that they'll leave some of these balloons up there in the sky. But um, I'm not sure if it's going to completely blow over. I think uh, Nick made a really good point, which is that you need to keep these lines of diplomacy open for a whole variety of very crucial reasons that, you know, things happen unexpectedly, things that are, you know, involve each other's citizens, whatever. Um, and what's been scary uh, for a lot of people, a lot of governments in recent months is how those lines of communication and diplomacy seem to be closing in on, in a lot of different ways. Um And the fact that there is a chance that they are, you know, being maybe pieced back together again in in places like Munich, um, I think is very hopeful. Nico Heinz, are you going to rain on this parade as as well? Or uh, do you agree that it's a good thing that uh, the top diplomats from the U.S. and China are speaking? I think it's really important, actually. I think the scariest thing that happened in the last week was that reportedly Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin tried to use the emergency line to get through to his counterpart in Beijing after the balloon had been shot down to try and de-escalate and make sure that everybody knew what was happening, that the missiles weren't firing off willy-nilly left and right, and the counterpart refused to speak to him. And I think that is a real sign of the icy relations between the nations. And that's what we've got to be concerned about. You know, even during the Cold War, those emergency phones were always kept clear. And there was always that ability to talk from one side to the other so that things didn't get misinterpreted and misunderstood. Um, So I think absolutely it's great news that they, well, we don't know it's confirmed, but we expect them to speak this week. And it's good news if Biden speaks to Xi. Uh, I think trying to take the heat out of these things because basically most of these things are some form of a misunderstanding and we just need to make sure that nothing 
goes wrong when people didn't even want it to because we've got enough real threats going on uh, to get hot under the collar over imagined threats is just something we have not got time for these days. Yeah, Matthew Dalton was talking earlier about the, the, the pressure that the U.S. is bearing across the political aisle uh, on China. China, which has domestic issues coming out of COVID, slower growth, a strain on public finances. Not like that other superpower we're about to mention now. India stunning the world this week with a record order. 470 Airbus and Boeing airplanes. There's also talk of an additional 370 more planes. This is for the national carrier Air India. Uh, the uh, firm order of 250 Airbuses, music to the ears of uh, France's president, France home to the uh, European Consortium's headquarters. That Airbus is contributing to the outstanding development of India and the new 250 aircrafts which will be delivered to Air India will be one more step in this direction. There is a deep commitment in France to provide the state-of-the-art, the most efficient technologies available to India, and to be part of your Made in India strategy. Matthew Dalton, a record number of orders here. Yeah, there are two things going on. First, uh, the world is unlocking from COVID. Um, uh, air travel has really rebounded. Uh, Air companies that were looking at their future during the pandemic, um, you know, with kind of pretty grim outlook, have, have suddenly seen things turn around. Uh, so this is, you know, a very, very welcome news for Boeing and Airbus, which kind of had gone into hibernation uh, during the pandemic. And the other thing that's going on is that um, India is uh, is the growth story in India, and um, it's the second largest country in the world. It, it is. Uh, got a growing population. Its economy is growing very quickly. Um, and with that, uh, it's going to need a lot more airplanes to take people around. So um, you, you combine those two things together. There was probably a, a whole bunch of pent-up demand there from orders that had not happened during the pandemic. Um, and this is just uh, you know, a real bonanza for the two dominant com um, companies, Boeing and Airbus. Uh, I, I'm just curious, Nick Spicer, because uh, the, uh, uh, you're at the security conference in Munich uh, where superpowers meet, not Russia this year. They're not invited. Uh, but we were talking about the U.S. and the Chinese. Does India have a footprint there? India is is represented. I don't think they're really, you know, central to the to the discussion here. I, I know there's a lot of con concern, particularly with NATO, for uh, you know uh, Indo Indo Pacific strategic uh, situations. Let's say, I mean, it, the evolution in Europe is to think of that region uh, when, of course, it's completely out of the NATO zone. Um, to consider China as a strategic rival, that's actually on on. On the agenda, China looms larger than than India. I think India is seen as more copacetic and less problematic than China, where you know uh, President Xi has just given himself a third term, uh, basically apparently becoming president for life. We'll see. Um, so the focus is more on on China uh, than it is on India. Yeah, India uh, open for business, but not always for criticism argue press freedom advocates just weeks after the BBC aired a documentary examining uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's role in deadly 2002 sectarian riots. Tax inspectors descending on the broadcaster's offices. It's been shut for three days. 
one advocate saying that at least four Indian outlets that had critically reported on the government have been raided by tax officers or financial crimes investigators in the past two years. Vivian Walt. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we don't often think about, but in fact, it is a hazardous business these days, being a journalist in India, critical of Modi, um, who has ruled his country pretty much with an iron grip. Um, his sort of anti-Muslim Hindu nationalist policies have made quite an impact on big parts of the country and, you know, tens and tens of millions of people. Um, it's something that we rarely discuss here in the West. Um, India's often been seen as kind of the nice democracy out there, um, and it really has not been for a number of years. Uh, Nico Heinz, uh, what's going to be the UK's reaction to all of this? Well, the BBC angle, it seems to have been being played down quite a lot. I think that's quite interesting um, in the way that the Western governments will be quick to raise uh, massive complaints if China or Russia was uh, interfering with the BBC or other major national broadcasters. I think there'd be swift condemnation. But I think people are trying to keep India on the side. It's a very delicate balance at the moment. There are some suggestions that India may have, in fact, surpassed China as the world's biggest country, maybe this week, or nobody quite knows the numbers because it's difficult to measure. Um, but certainly they're a rising force. And I think their growing strength is really clear. I mean, look, we have Macron there speaking in English, um, which we know that he tries to avoid where possible. Olaf Scholz gave his speech in Munich on home soil in English today, and I think Macron stuck to the French, but he was willing to speak English to try and appeal to the Indian growing power. So I think it does show that India is definitely a much more hefty uh, power that we can no longer push around in the way that we once did. Uh, we'll, we'll spare you uh, his predecessor, François Hollande, speaking English when he was in India. Uh, but it's uh, Vivian Walt remembers it with mirth. <laughs> um, in my heart and in my head, it was time to leave. Those could have been the words of New Zealand's prime minister. After all, she announced her resignation last month. No, they were uttered this week by Scotland's first minister. Nicola Sturgeon, on whose watch Scottish nationalism made historic inroads, uh, Vivian Walt, and S Scottish uh, uh, journalists in the newsroom were surprised by this announcement. Absolutely. And, you know, in some ways, she was such an iconic figure. She was dynamic and, you know, vocal and just, um, you know, she was sort of compelling as a leader. And at a time when there weren't all that many such women leaders around. She was young and she appeared to come close to winning the referendum on independence. And of course, you know, despite the fact that she's in a sense... Which was being, lost by 10 points in the end. Absolutely. It seems to be narrower now. You, They probably might still win it, but maybe just by a few points. But that's kind of an abstract point because... Maybe Nico Hines would be better to talk about this, but as I understand, the British Parliament has now basically enshrined in law the fact that the, the Scottish Parliament cannot hold a referendum without London's approval, um, which, of course, it will never give, as I 
leave. So, uh, well, while London refuses her second independence referendum, Sturgeon still hopes that the next UK general election will be treated by voters north of the border as a referendum. But I am firmly of the view that there is no majority support for independence in Scotland. But that support needs to be solidified and it needs to grow further if our independent Scotland is to have the best possible foundation. To achieve that, we must reach across the divide in Scottish politics. And my judgment now is that a new leader will be better able to do this. Nicole Hines, uh, when she talks about uh, consolidating the pro-independence sentiment, reaching across the divide, uh, is that doable by uh, her or any of her possible successors? I think it was a very interesting kind of self-deprecating analysis that she offered there. I think if you look, you know, she's been leader of the SNP since 2014. And if you look at the polls in 2014, it was about... 45% pro-independence. And if you look at the polls today, it's about 45% pro-independence. So in one way, you could say that she's failed. She's had a massively advantageous uh, battlefield to, to fight this war on because you've had people like Boris Johnson and Liz Truss in the UK who are phenomenally unpopular in Scotland. Um in power in Downing Street, and that has helped boost their side of the argument. Brexit was supposed to be another huge boon for the Scottish nationalists because they didn't, because the Scottish people didn't vote to leave the European Union. So Nicola Sturgeon said that would be more fuel on the fire for people who wanted Scotland to have their own say politically. And yet she has failed to get that number up to a point where I think most the point Viv was raising about whether or not London would allow a referendum, it's very complicated. It's true that London has to give assent for a referendum, and they did under David Cameron to have the first referendum. I think that there's a sort of belief that if you were to get the numbers up to something like 55%, 60% of the population in opinion polls saying that they wanted Scottish independence, that London would grant that second referendum. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what Nicola Sturgeon is trying to do by making, as we saw in that clip, making the next general election a de facto referendum is actually incredibly divisive in Scotland and even within the SNP. And that's one of the reasons I think that she's actually stepped down. She tried to push this idea that if they got 50% of the vote in, you have to remember, it's very complicated because Nicola Sturgeon is elected to the Scottish Parliament, not to the London Parliament. And she wanted to make the London Parliament elections where the SNP send some of their number down to London to take part in the British Parliament. She wanted to make that a de facto referendum. And it just didn't look like to anybody that 50% of the population of Scotland would use their right to determine who represents them in London to kind of go off on this other single issue. And, and I think that divisiveness has cost her here. Uh, the last time Labour had a prime minister, he was from where, I ask? Uh, uh, in, in those days, uh, the Labour Party, uh, in the days of Gordon Brown, they had uh, uh, quite a stronghold uh, in, in Scotland. Uh, if Sturgeon goes, is that good news for Labour? Matthew Dalton. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not uh, necessarily well-versed in the, the intricacies uh, of... Uh, of the Scottish um, English relationship, but um, 
No, I think that uh, you, you know what what the, the the numbers that Nico was um, talking about. Uh, you know that that really the support for um, leaving uh, the UK hasn't necessarily budged. It shows the kind of interdependence between economic interdependence. They have the same money um, between um, Scotland and England, and um, you know the the kind of other option on the menu for Scotland is uh, is leaving the UK and maybe even joining the EU, um, adopting the euro, and you know everybody knows the problems that the euro has had uh, over the last decade. Um, you know, so I, I think we've seen, and even within the euro, when you when two regions share a currency, um, that really uh, cements them together and breaking that apart and and going um, their separate ways. Um, adopting a new currency or adopting the you know their own independent or, or adopting the the euro uh, was kind of and still is a, a frightening proposition for much of Scotland. All right, and we uh, have positive noises that a, a, a trade agreement could be at hand uh, between uh, the UK government and the uh, European Union uh, soon. So we'll see how that plays out. Matthew Dalton, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank uh, Vivian Walter, Nick O'Hines in London, Nick Spicer uh, covering that Munich Security Conference uh, for us. Thank you for being with us here in the world this week.